0: Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the Business and Economics Podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keane. Today on the show, Alphaville's Isabella Kaminska in conversation with Jeffrey West. Last year, Izzy and West met in London to discuss his recent book. It's called Scale The Universal Laws of Growth, Innovation, Sustainability, and the Pace of Life in Organisms, Cities, Economies, and Companies. West is a trained physicist and now a complexity scientist. And they start the conversation by discussing what that means and why it matters. Here it is.
1: I want to welcome you to the studio, Geoffrey. Hi, thanks for joining us here in London.
2: Yes, thank you, Isabella. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Is that a good description of yourself, theoretical physicist turned complexity scientist?
2: (laughs) Up to a point. was trained as a physicist, and I spent most of my career doing theoretical physics, you know, quarks and gluons and dark matter and string theory. And then I migrated into some fundamental questions in biology. And so I've done a lot of work in biology and uh, uh, questions like uh, aging and mortality and the origins of sleep, uh, you know, why we live 100 years how we function, how do we metabolize, and so on. But that led me to think about social organizations, first of all, just as a metaphor, biological sort of organism metaphor, but then taking that seriously and asking, can you develop a science of cities, a science of companies? Meaning, um, you know, is it conceivable that we have a kind of quantitative, analytic, computable predictable understanding of how cities and companies work.
1: So, I mean, reading the book, it seemed to me that you're propelled by the same sort of notion that propels a lot of physicists. You're in search of simplicity and Mm. all the complexity. And certainly this idea of a single universal law Mm -hmm. that maybe can apply uh, across all these broad sort of organisms is that fair? Is that where the physics side of you comes in? Yes,
2: I would say so. I mean i uh, you know as I said, I am a physicist, and indeed we are driven by looking for you know universal principles, underlying laws, and you know, I think that's a good way of putting it. The search for simplicity underlying the extraordinary complexity that you know is in the world around us that 's what physics has uh, you know devoted itself to. And I think one of the begging questions is, is the extraordinary complex and diverse world that we've created on the planet in our socioeconomic life, finance, economies, collective behavior, social networks, and so on, can all of that be put into a similar kind of framework? I just uh, took a taxi cab from South Kensington to here, which is not very far. And it took an hour because of the complexity of London. The question is, you know, is that just some unique random experience or, you know, does it have some underlying dynamic that we can understand beyond just the fact that there are traffic jams, but is there something broader going on and uh, how does that relate to the general socio-economic life of, of a great city like London?
1: So, I mean, before we get into the nitty gritty of the book, because it is a fascinating read. I'm not a physicist. I'm not even a scientist. I I dropped science when I was about (laughs) 16. It really spoke to me and it, it really kind of gave me an impression of how growth works. And it really fundamentally seems to be about growth. I wanted you to tell us a little bit about what complexity science is, because it's really hard to mm-hmm. sum that up. I, I certainly sure. struggled when writing uh, the review. So how how best to describe the science of complexity?
2: Yes, well, it's, uh, you know, it is difficult to describe. And, uh, you know, those of us that uh, work in it, so to speak, I don't think we agree particularly on a precise definition. So maybe in answering it, it's first, it might be useful to think about, um, if you're thinking about complexity, to ask the question, what's simplicity? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And in a certain sense, physics is the science of simplicity because uh, simplicity is, for example, understanding the motion of the planets uh, going around the sun or the, the motion of satellites going around the earth. Uh, They are simple systems, even though they're very complicated. So one of the things one has to distinguish is being complicated from being complex. But it is, in, in this parlance, simple, because they can be written in precise equations. Now, compare and contrast that with your kind of the way you deal with your daily life. You know, you have a family and you have to get your kids to school and you're worried about, you know, I don't know, paying the mortgage, I don't know, and uh, there's problems with the economy and then there's an election coming up and there's Brexit and there's Mr. Trump tweeting away, you know, and all that seems kind of random and arbitrary and it's uh, one manifestation of a complex system and a complex system is not just that it's complicated like a simple system. But one of its issues is that it has huge numbers of agents, huge numbers of actors. We have 10 to the 14th cells in our body. Uh, London has, you know, 10, 12 million people. So these have enormous numbers of underlying individual components. And a characteristic of them is not just that they're interacting, but of course, The collective, the sum, London is much more than the sum of all its people or the sum of all its roads or the sum of all its buildings. It's something that emerges from that somehow.
1: Is an example of a complex system something, well, obviously a city or weather, that sort of stuff?
2: weather, a company, financial financial markets, Mm -hmm. uh, and so on. Um, They all have, as I say, a huge number of actors involved, and they continue adapting and evolving. And the behavior of the market, for example, is much more than just the behavior of all the individual stocks or, um, and so,
1: so on. So is the science about trying to find the inner simplicity yes. of this? So the
2: positive. question is, underlying all that, mm-hmm. are there any simple laws? Or is it you know, just every single one of these systems and uh, you know, every single one of its actions is unique? You know, When you look at the diversity of organisms... Walk through a park or you walk through a woods, it just looks like this, you know, jumbled mess of, you know, different species and different sizes of things. And, you know, each forest or wood looks different than another and so on. I mean, that's just. Um, an ecosystem, but then you look at a city and so on, it's even more so because you have all the interactions of all the people and all their lives. So at first, it seems like there is a, a sort of infinite number of equations underlying this, impossible to understand any of it. It's hopeless. So the question is, are there any underlying laws? And the book I've written is to explain, my God, despite all of that, there are actually some underlying laws, but they have a different character than the kind of Newton's laws. The hallmark of science is that we can predict things, we can test them against observation and experiment, and uh, continue to refine our understanding. But the nature of these laws are almost certainly different. And the example I like to give, because it's the example that got me into this, was the question of aging and mortality. Um, I happen to have a long... Interest and on kind of morbid interest. In. <laughs> well,
1: you say in the book that it was kind yeah. of when you approached your fifties that yes. suddenly you you got this sort of creeping sense of your yes. mortality. I his, did because yeah.
2: I come from a. I mean, unfortunately, I come from a long line of short-lived males, and so when I was in my fifties, I began to realize, my God, you know, if if that's written in my Book, so to speak, my book of life. Then maybe I only have five or ten years, and maybe it's sort of interesting to think about it. So I started thinking about what happens. You know, why is it that we age and why is it we die? And I I brought to it a question which, surprisingly, as far as I can tell, hadn't been made very explicit. Which is an obvious and very simple one, but very much a physicist question. Why a hundred years? Mm. You know, why not a thousand years or a million years? What determined that? Why is it that the lifespan of human beings is of the order of a hundred years?
1: Yeah, we've been obsessed with aging for, for, sure. for forever. Forever. But I yeah, guess absolutely. we were looking for ways to suspend aging That's or right. find technology that can extend life, but we never really thought about. Why 100?
2: Yeah, so I came to, as I say I came to it as a physicist, and uh, you know I'm also I would also be interested in extending life, obviously. So what that led me to uh, thinking about was if you want to understand the scale of life and why we die, then you better first understand what's keeping you alive, because something went wrong, something is going wrong, and eventually it can't remain viable. So uh, that leads you to um, think about metabolism. Metabolism is the process which takes roughly, you know, stuff <laughs> and makes it into life, which is unbelievable, actually. It's amazing. And that's what we do. When so, is we that
1: because we, we usually think about it in terms of human bodies, but yes. you apply it on a much broader basis? Oh, absolutely. So,
2: later I, I did I expand the idea to the metabolism of a city, metabolism of a company. But fundamentally, uh, it? it's about but how it's energy is. Bringing in resources he, yeah. and mm-hmm. energy mm-hmm. into the system and making that into something productive. In our case, it's our lives. In a company, it's the products and the sales and salaries of employees and so on and so forth. City, it's what makes it all work. So uh, it's fundamental quantity to all of these. And uh, it is maybe, from a, certainly from a physicist's viewpoint, metabolic rate, the rate at which you need to introduce energy, which is, roughly speaking, how much food you eat today, is a fundamental quantity. So one of the first things I discovered when I started uh, investigating this was something that had been known for a long time, which is quite extraordinary, and that is a scaling law for metabolic rate, meaning if I look across a huge spectrum of animals of different sizes... Is there any regularity to the amount of food they have to eat to stay alive now, you might have thought uh, if you were oriented towards uh, you know evolution and natural selection when you think about it, each organism, each animal um, has evolved when its unique history each organ, each cell type, each genome has its own unique history so uh, you know you would have thought therefore. If I looked at it, there would be, maybe there'd be some vague correlation, but it would be sort of, or if you plotted it, if you plotted on one axis, metabolic rate, on another axis, the size, it would be sort of not exactly randomly distributed, but it'd be all over the graph. Quite the contrary. You find that it satisfies an extraordinarily simple scaling law. And in English, I can, I'm not going to try to do it here in mathematics, but it's even simple in mathematics, but in English... It roughly says if I double the size of an organism from 10 grams to 20 grams or 10 kilograms to 20 kilograms, doesn't matter, just double it anywhere, you might have the most naive level of thought, well, you need maybe roughly twice as much energy because there's twice as many cells. No, what you need systematically is, roughly speaking, only 75% more energy. So every time you double, you save So therefore, the bigger the animal, systematically and predictably, it expresses an extraordinary economy of scale. Much less energy is needed to support your cells than is needed to support your dogs or your cats. But your horse uses even less energy per cell to stay alive in a systematic way governed by this kind of three quarters number.
1: So with regards to that, you tell a really interesting story about an elephant oh. <laughs> um, and how the yes. presumption that maybe yes. things should just double organically, right. like so for every doubling, everything else doubles. Yes. That was an incorrect presumption this, yes. in the case of this elephant yes. because they, want, they drugged him yes. and they just doubled the dose in- Well, they did something worse than yeah. that.
2: It was an experiment on LSD, actually, mm. and, um, and they were giving LSD to an elephant. Uh, maybe this is not the place to try <laughs> to explain why they did this, but this was an, uh, an experiment done many years ago. The only experiments at that time that had been done in, uh, really were on cats, and they knew how much a cat would take. So what they simply did was take the uh, the weight of an elephant divided by the weight of a cat, which is some humongous number, multiply that by the dose of a cat and give it to an elephant. And they gave it to the elephant, and the elephant went completely bonkers, and killed over and died within an hour. And this, by the way, is not some sort of loony paper. This was a paper published in maybe the, one of the highest profile science journals, science. And um, the conclusion, and this is interesting of itself, that elephants had an anomalous reaction to uh, LSD. And if you do the arithmetic, instead of needing this humongous amount, you know, several hundred grams of LSD, you needed uh, the the calculation with the scaling law is just a few grams. And uh, then it would have been fine. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that how this is a huge issue for the development of drugs. You know, a huge amount of time and energy goes into drug companies trying to figure that out. And uh, I've been a little bit involved in some of that. But it's a problem because you do, you know, all the drugs are developed on mice typically and they have to be scaled up to human beings.
1: So basically, there were a lot of, because we didn't really understand how metabolism scales, we were making incorrect presumptions. Well,
2: it was actually known. That's one of the curious things. It was actually known, but it wasn't, no theory had been developed. Right. And my contribution with my colleagues was to give a deep understanding of where did that law come from? And by the way, really crucial in this, we're just talking about metabolism, but it turns out, Anything that you can think of that you can measure about, say, the physiology of an organism or its life history, life history meaning how long does it live, how long does it take to mature, etc. But anything that you can measure, so there might be 40 or 50 of such uh, metrics, all scale in this very simple way that if you double you can predict how much uh, how much things increase or decrease, as the case may be.
1: And, and other kind of um, consistencies, like, for example, with aging as well, yes. and how they move. So
2: aging, uh, yes, yeah, so these are things like aging, how long uh, organisms live. Uh, for example, one of the most remarkable is that the increase in lifespan, the scaling law for increase in lifespan, which is also related to this kind of quarter power, this twenty-five, seventy-five percent rule, the increase in lifespan turns out to be exactly complement the decrease in heart rate the bigger the animal. You know, elephant hearts beat much slower than our hearts and ours beat much slower than a mouse's. But they in a very predictable way. And so they complement each other. So if you multiply them together, the increase in lifespan is exactly compensated for by the decrease in uh, heart rate, so much so that if you multiply the two together, it doesn't change whether you're a mouse or an elephant. And if you think about it, what is heart rate times lifespan? That's the number of heartbeats in a lifetime. So this is kind of amazing. A shrew lives one to two years and sits on the palm of my hand. A whale, which is about as big as this building we're in, lives can live up to 125, 150 years and has an incredibly slow heart rate, but so much so that both of them have about one and a half billion heartbeats in their lifespan. And that's true across all mammals. That's fascinating.
1: So it's very beautiful,
2: actually. And the work that I did uh, to explain these scaling laws explains not just metabolic rate, but all of these scaling laws, including that one. That's
1: really interesting because so when when I was telling people about this amazing sort of rule for mammals one thing that people kept saying to me but what about tortoises and yes. I was like well, well they're not mammals they're well. not mammals <laughs> <laughs> for one thing but,
2: but there are outliers right, for right. sure and in fact we are outliers uh-huh. we weren't outliers we've only been outliers in the last uh, 150 years or so up until about 18 middle of the 19th century if you just looked at the kind of average lifespan of human beings on the planet, the average life expectancy was maybe 40 years. And a lot of that is due with child infant mortality. But if you just take that as an average, it's uh, it was 35. In fact, it was, I think, in the 16th century, it was more like 35. But it's about 40 years. And we've doubled it. So at 40 years, we we actually correspond to that one and a half billion heart, heartbeats in a lifetime.
1: So we should be dead so by So we've doubled, yes. And indeed, <laughs> okay. that's
2: that's right. who we were. We right. evolved to, you know, maybe that's the reason why women go through menopause at ah, 40, yes. around 40, because natural selection is finished. You mm. know, natural selection doesn't care. Reach 40, produce 10, 12, whatever it is, children, several die. That was who we were and so on. And then, you know, we die, so to speak. Of course, there are, there's a long tail to that. Many people did live longer. But uh, that was the expected lifespan. That's almost doubled in the developed world and has uh, been increasing enormously. I think even in India, if you average over the whole of India, it's, closer, it's close to 60 now. And the reason for that is to do with a uh, second part of my book, which is to do with socioeconomic systems and urbanization and what urbanization has brought us. And the the discovery that we made of becoming collective animals, going from being sort of small hunter-gatherer groups to becoming sedentary creatures living in one place, forming communities. Eventually, you know, beginning about maybe ten thousand years ago, and our discovery of language, our invention of language, allowing us to communicate, share information discover economies of scale, you and I working together can produce more than each of us working individually and by interacting, talking and forming social groups, creating ideas in innovating. And, you know, in the last 10,000 years, and especially in the last 200 years, uh, we have exploited that unbelievably. So I mean, the, this is
1: really when you, when you transfer from uh, talking about scale to talking about growth in, exactly. and, of, in and of itself. Exactly. So right? let me just, yeah. yeah, so
2: let me go back to biology for the moment about growth. And the idea is that the universality is actually the universality of the network system. So even though, you know, we have a beating heart and we're a bunch of um, tubes, so to speak, a circuitry system and a tree or a plant is a bunch of fibers joined together, but it also has this kind of branching network, the mathematical properties of those two networks, the fundamental properties, are independent of the evolved design. It's the same mathematics being repeated over and over again in these different designs. And uh, one of the things that leads to is um, an interesting understanding of growth. Why it is, that uh, we grow quickly and then stop. And uh, that comes about because growth in in this uh, paradigm is, you know, you eat, you metabolize, you send metabolic energy, so to speak, through the networks to cells. And at the cellular level, some of that energy is allocated to maintenance, meaning it repairs damage, it replaces cells that have died, and it grows new ones. So you put that into a mathematical equation <laughs> and out pops, amazingly, uh, the growth curves for any organism. And, and just to uh, describe that growth so.
1: curve to listeners, it, it it sort of accelerates and then it eases and then it off. Stops. And then it stops.
2: And then like it stops like we plateaus And plateaus. And then it and gradually... It has it. And then part of the theory is, if you carry this through, that it stops growing and eventually it will die. And it will die because, uh, roughly speaking... The process of sending energy through these networks, the very system that keeps you alive also has deleterious effects because it's wearing and tearing the system. And it's extremely expensive to repair that uh, your body faithfully, exactly. So eventually you you wear out like an automobile or a washing machine and uh, it can't be sustained. I mean, I'm making almost a cartoon version of it, but that's sort of the essence. (laughs) And that is the essence of the mathematics and the theory.
1: We're growing, growing, growing. And there are these forces that are having an impact on cell structure. And then over time, we need to dedicate more and more energy to fend off those forces and to maintain. So like with an automobile, even if you were the most careful driver, you could not stop it from deteriorating over time. Yes, and so therefore... you have to as
2: you know, you know, if someone wants to keep a car that's 100 years old, which people do, it's extremely expensive. And in fact, if they were to drive that car, which most of them don't, of course, because they're vintage and so on, but if you were to use that car on a daily basis and keep it in the condition it was made in, the amount of money you would spend on keeping it really top notch would be prohibitive for most people. So, so eventually a cost-benefit cost so kind of Yes, it's cost-benefit, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And natural selection has worked that way uh, for us. And, uh, you know, eventually the system, you know, it's, it's, you can't afford, so to speak, to put that amount of energy into repair um, and maintenance. Eventually the damage roughly kills you. You know, in, in physical terms, it's uh, to do with something we call entropy, It's formalized in something in physics we call the second law of thermodynamics, which is the most fundamental universal law in the universe. And roughly speaking, in English, what it says is if if you put energy in to order a system, make it highly ordered like a human body or a city or a company, so you're putting in resources all the time to make it very ordered and so on, necessarily you have to create disorder something that's random, and waste products. So disorder products.
1: pays for order.
2: Yes. And, of course, what you're trying to do is minimize that, but you're always going to have to do some. And that's called entropy. So you it's know, like entropy, waste. Like waste. And Heat, heat that mm-hmm. uh, comes from, uh, you know, running an engine. And in society, it's uh, things like um, what I've just been through getting here for an hour in London. I mean, it's ridiculous that I... I I spent an hour going just a couple of miles in a taxi and that is some manifestation of the disorder that's caused by this extraordinary phenomenon we call London which is which is of course uh, the grandest level highly ordered but necessarily it has these uh, unintended consequences
1: But before we get into like cities yes. and corporations and and how this growth rule applies to them I want you to talk a little bit about innovation because yes. one of the points you make is that these bounded rules they keep for as long as there's no innovation correct. but theoretically you, you I mean you reference um the example of Galileo's ant and this idea that if you were just to double the ant in size yes. it would collapse under its own weight yes, correct. but you could maybe achieve a massive ant but you might have to use sort of different materials exactly and that's where and that's the innovation comes
2: from, right? perfect yes that's exactly yes mm-hmm. uh, you know one of the intriguing questions that many have had is uh, children, is, you know, could there be giant ants? And indeed, when I grew up, uh, you know, there were incessant science science fiction movies of giant insects and so on.
1: Like Godzilla. Well, Godzilla. And I talk about Godzilla in the book, actually. Could
2: Godzilla exist? And he couldn't. Or she couldn't, (laughs) whatever. But uh, it's still interesting to contemplate. Uh, meaning Godzilla couldn't exist if Godzilla's made of the same stuff that, you know, organisms are made of. uh, And that's true of ants. However, if you take the scaling law for strength, which has been known for a very long time, and you scale from an ant to a human being, you find that if that ant were the size of a human being, if that were possible, it would only lift about, One of its own kind, like we do. I can just about lift another human being, just. Probably not at my age any longer, but, uh, you know, typically one could lift another human being. Hard to lift two. And this was already understood by Galileo 400 years ago. But the point is that going back to the ant itself, the ant itself would collapse under its own weight if you just simply scaled it up.
1: Which is why also you say like a whale that innovation, yeah. it, it exists because, yes, it, because it's, it's the water. Yes, because the water, uh, uh,
2: that was an innovative mm-hmm. act. Mm-hmm. You know, so the constraints of these scaling laws in nature have led to natural selection, finding new ways of getting around them by, by using different uh, engineered designs. And we're, that's what much of the world looks like around us. All kinds of, you know, trees are a fantastic example of getting to great height, by having this great big trunk, I mean, it seems kind of trivial, but, you know, that's an incredibly innovative design and very simple. And um,
1: hence, an ant, to be a massive ant, it would either have to have bigger legs that's right. or different materials. It would be
2: completely out of shape. But then, theoretically, it wouldn't be an it would ant. would be an think. ant. So that's the thing. Yeah. That, then it evolves mm-hmm. into something else. There's mm-hmm. a new design evolves, if you like which is we call something different, you know, and and we are one of the, you know, we could be thought of as, I mean, we're not, but we could be thought of in this picture as um, some innovative designed ant, make an ant bigger to do the kinds of things we do.
1: This book is, it really is full of insights, but it's also extremely kind of scattered across so many different dimensions. So it's very hard to know how to sum it all up. But I think one, one area that I'd like to focus on At this point in the discussion is how innovation has not only suppressed these constraints, but it's given us a lot of hope that growth can be open ended and never ending. Whereas actually, the moral of your book, if there (laughs) is any, is that maybe this is a is a slightly overly optimistic view. So tell us a little bit about how this innovation comes to be sustainable in the long term.
2: Yes. Okay. so let me back off a moment, and uh, because growth and innovation sort of are loosely connected, at mm-hmm. least. Uh, we talked about animals, uh, organisms stopping growing. And of course, as a, in our, our present paradigm of socioeconomic systems, capitalism, entrepreneurship, and so on, that's a disaster. We have to be open-ended growth. You know, we always have to be growing, whatever it is. You know, that's not good. But it turns out that... Um, if you look at socioeconomic systems, cities, and that was the one I first focused on, was to first ask ask, you know, to what extent are cities like organisms and do they scale? Is London a scaled up Birmingham, which is a scaled up Brighton, if you, um, even though they have different histories, geographies and even cultures to some extent? So the first thing we discovered was that they do indeed scale. I mean, that is in terms of anything that you can measure. So some are trivial things. Well, not so trivial, but some are very obvious things, like the length of all the roads or the number of petrol stations. But more sophisticated might be, um, you know, what are the average wage in such a city? What is the number and how the number of patents produced? The equivalent to GDP of the city, uh, the number of AIDS cases... Uh, the number of educational institutions, anything that you can measure. And what you
1: discovered is that essentially per population size, there is a a remarkable consistency. Yes. So if you
2: then look, as we did in biology, you plot those metrics Mm -hmm. versus the size of a city, you find, as in biology, there is a kind of systematic scaling law. Mm. There's more variance among them, but uh, nevertheless, the, the evidence is very, very strong that they they satisfy similar kinds of scaling laws in terms of their mathematics. If you look at infrastructure, like mm-hmm. length of all the roads, those scale, as in biology, there's an economy of scale. Double the size of a city, you don't need twice as many petrol stations, you only need 85% more. Similarly with all infrastructure, so it's a 15% savings rather than 25%, but it's quite similar. And what was interesting is that this seemed to be true across the globe doesn't matter what infrastructure you look at doesn't matter what country we looked at china japan chile brazil united states portugal wherever they all behave in the same way so there's kind of this universality of infrastructure but much more interesting and provocative was looking at socioeconomic quantities because these quantities are unique to modern times you know that is they didn't exist on the planet before human beings did what we're doing, you know have cities and so on, and uh, those are things like wages, like uh, the number of professional people, uh, the number of AIDS cases, the number of patents produced, therefore, sort of so to speak, the um, innovative part of a city, uh, all these various socioeconomic metrics and what we discovered there was something again quite surprising and remarkable that they scale in a systematic way but they scale what we call superlinearly, meaning instead of the bigger you are, the less per capita, the bigger you are, the more per capita, the bigger you are, the more patents produced per capita, the higher the wages per capita, the more police per capita, uh, the higher crime per capita, more AIDS cases per capita, whatever it was, all to the same degree <laughs> with an added 15%. And that was true again across the globe. So it was like, my God, There's some kind of universal law underlying the structure of urban systems, which is kind of astonishing because they all evolved essentially independently. Japanese cities, you know, there wasn't a Congress in you know, 1780 where everybody sat down and said, well, this is how we're going to design cities and form (laughs) urban systems. It just happened organically. Now, one thing I should say, going back to what I said earlier, these aren't laws like Newton's laws there's variance in them so when i say they scale they scale to sort of 80-90% level the generality is at the 80-90% level the individuality is more at the 10 to 20% level so there yeah.
1: is still there's still a sort a, of there's a residue yeah, yeah,
2: yes absolutely um, and, and that's what does distinguish a city but underlying london is a great generality at this level at this 80-90% level but the individuality is that 10 percent In terms of things you can measure. These right. are, this is very important. And the question then is, you know, how in the hell can that be that these cities are all, these urban systems all seem to satisfy the same laws. And then when you think about it, you realize what it must be. Going back to the biological paradigm where I said underlying it were networks, where the physics and mathematics of networks. So what underlies it here? Well, It's at one level, it's the physics and mathematics of the infrastructural networks, but much more importantly, and the most crucial aspect of a city is it is the physics and mathematics of social networks, of interacting with each other, because the very essence of a city, the whole point of a city, is that it is a edifice, a stage, something that we created, we invented in order to enhance our social interaction.
1: And it's from that social interaction, that innovation. Yes.
2: So the bigger the city, the more interactions there are per capita. And it is that which makes a bigger city more creative, more innovative, more sexy, more buzz than a smaller city.
1: That sounds fantastic. It is. It's
2: wonderful. And that's why, you know, big cities are great. Bigger cities are even better, except
1: except there's two is, things. Yeah. One is
2: one is the bad and ugly come along with the good. So the bigger the city, you get more disease, you know, more flu and AIDS cases, you get more crime and so on. But that is, you know, most people are willing to suffer along with that because they get uh, greater opportunities, greater job opportunities, etc. So this is great. And by the way, the nature of that network, you can sort of understand what's going on. You know, you and I talk, you talk to someone else, they talk to someone else, they talk back to me and so on. So we have this kind of positive feedback that's continually going on, which sort of bootstraps ourselves up to bigger and better things. So cities are the great creators of ideas, the great creators of wealth and the great origins of innovation, all wonderful. Now we go back to growth. So you have the same idea, we have this idea of metabolism of city, all the resources coming in, all the energy coming in, the money coming in, whatever, ideas coming, being created, and so on. And that is super linear, as distinct from what we had before. And what does that do? That maintains the city. That is, it repairs damage. You know, the roads get damaged. The tube gets damaged in London, you have to repair all those, but it has to repair the people too. It has to there's doctors oh, wait, and so, hospitals. So
1: you're saying that on a superlinear basis
2: Still, you have the superlinear is the mm-hmm. input, is the metabolism, but mm-hmm. how does that get allocated? Some mm-hmm. of that gets allocated to maintaining what's already there. Right. Okay. Therefore repairing the infrastructure, repairing the The infrastructure the people. is sublinear, right? Yes. So that's what, so some yes, of that gain exactly. goes towards, so goes towards mainta- that. maintaining exactly. a sublinear system. And mm-hmm some of it goes to new growth. Mm -hmm. Now, it turns out the mathematics is just like it is in organisms, except something beautiful happens, and this is all still very positive, that instead of having growth that starts quickly and then stops, it grows quickly and keeps growing quickly. That is it has open ended growth, the superlinear behavior leads to open ended growth, which so is, is that
1: one of those parabolic kind of yes, it goes uh, up curves.
2: goes where it keeps going up mm-hmm. it goes up in fact faster than exponential, which is pretty much what we 've been doing that 's great, and the data all agrees with that, it and so that 's like good now downside. we come to the <laughs> now we come to the i call it sometimes a fatal flaw in the system. One is not so fatal, the first part, and that is in biology, the structure of those networks that lead to economy of scale leads to the slowing of the pace of life. Here we have these networks that are positive feedback, bigger you are, the more per capita, and they lead, not surprisingly when you think about it, not to the slowing of the pace of life, but the increasing pace of life. And you can predict how fast that is and uh, from this uh, the, the mathematics. And indeed, you can even, you know, if you could extrapolate it to predict how fast people walk on streets, because you're still part of a network. You walk on Oxford Street, you're still part of that network. You still feel part of that. So uh, the pace of life increases systematically. So as you're growing, as the city is growing, or as the socioeconomic system is growing, Life gets faster, which we viscerally feel, and we know. We've, that's, you can measure that, and it's true. That's a problem, but maybe not a serious problem. So here's the fatal flaw.
1: Uh-oh. Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: So here it is. So we have this marvelous open-ended growth, but it has built into the mathematics something called a finite time singularity. That's the technical phrase. So here's what it means. Yes. It means in English that in some finite time in the future could be five years, 10 years, 100 years, uh, all these metrics, whatever metric we're looking at, could be the GDP, could be um, um, uh, the number of AIDS cases, number of patents produced, uh, whatever, wages, will become infinite. Mm-hmm. It's completely nuts, obviously. You can't. I mean, none of those things come infinite. And that's what's called the singularity. But the theory t- sort of tells you what happens. It tells you that in, in that instance, the uh, system stagnates and then collapses. So it's a kind of sophisticated version of the Malthusian argument that you can't sustain exponential growth, which was wrong. And it was wrong because of, well, you can ask the question, how do you get out of this? How do you avoid this fantastic growth followed by collapse? And the way you get out of it is to recognize that the growth took place within some, roughly speaking, given paradigm, within some great innovation, such as, you know, we discovered iron or we discovered coal or we invented computers or we discovered IT, but something that has a kind of um, a universal effect. that And it's almost as if you kind of start the clock over again. So the idea is you would go up this growth curve, you would collapse, but before then, you better make a major innovation which, so to speak, resets the clock. You reinvent yourself, and then you start over again.
1: Right. So civilizations that have collapsed yep. would be ones that failed to innovate. That have failed to, to do that. And they like failed the to Romans, innovate. They remain. To yes. to find they uh, combustible fuels, for example. Well, what, exactly. So exactly. Um, whereas if you make that if you innovation do that, in time, you, you get will move to, on
2: mm-hmm. and start over again. So it's sort of almost like a little theorem. If you want to have continuous open-ended growth, you have to have... Uh, continuous cycles of innovation. Except there's
1: another downside.
2: And now there's another downside. Yes. Because not only as you go along this growth curve, whatever the innovation is, life is getting faster. The time between innovations has to get shorter and shorter. So it's not only that life is speeding up, but the pace at which you have to produce these major paradigm-shifting innovations to avoid singularity and collapse those have to come along at a faster and faster rate.
1: So theoretically, you run out of time to yes. make the innovation. so that's
2: the question. So if you look at the data, mm-hmm. it's, it supports this, and it supports the, both qualitatively and quantitatively. And then you have the issue you know, that uh, the innovation between computers and IT was maybe 20, 25 years. So we've got to make another one in less time than that, in 20 odd years, we're gonna to have to come up with another innovation which is the analog to the IT revolution, and in order to keep this pace going. And, you know, that may well happen. Most of them are unpredictable, it may be one, it could be something as mundane as driverless cars may have some profound effect, or, you know, all the hype about artificial intelligence or machine learning or big data, who in the hell knows? Probably none of the above. It's probably something that just like IT, sort of popped out of nowhere, roughly speaking, something major will happen. So um, I like to think of this on the grand scale, but you can also think of it on the local scale, in terms of a company or even an individual, an individual in his or her own life, of inventing oneself and dealing with you know, open-ended growth.
1: In terms of the Malthusian side, so are you, would you consider so, yourself a neo-Malthusian? Well,
2: I, uh, yes, yeah, so um, Malthus was wrong because he didn't take into account innovation. Uh, the Club of Rome studies in the 70s and uh, Paul Ehrlich and his population bomb also wrong because they didn't recognize this problem of innovation. So in fact, when I first did this work and I saw, my God, a fantastic, the role of innovation, this is what's going to save us and so on. And then I realized it had this horrible flaw, so to speak, in it, that it, the problem of life getting faster and having to innovate faster, and indeed that's what we see, and so the question is, you know, can we keep up with that? Uh, because if you take that argument sort of reductio ad absurdum, you're going to have to make a major innovation, you know, every five years, then every few years, then every one year, and then every, it was completely nuts. So something has to change. Something does have to change. And the question is, what do we have to do to have a soft landing into a situation where we can still have? innovation, ideas, wealth creation, entrepreneurship, and not have this kind of growth. Maybe another kind of growth needs to replace it.
1: Because one thing I also find very interesting is, you know, you talk a lot about exponential curves and singularities. And the tech utopians in the world, yes, they are also obsessed with singularities and, and exponential kind of systems. So they're using it as a as an excuse to be optimistic. Yes, that this they do. is the great sort of magic that will help us yes. uh, overcome these barriers. Whereas actually, your point is that it's 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 possibly a, a dark thing, not a positive yes. thing. So how how do you reconcile their optimistic take with your more pessimistic
2: take? Well, I would say uh, the problem is that uh, people that have, uh, you know, they're mostly out of um, Silicon Valley types and computer science. There isn't a theory for understanding any of this. It was the idea of singularities comes out of mathematical physics. And we have a, you know, this is a theory that uh, which is being extrapolated. And the problem is that um, it's not just this singularity, but their singularities have to keep coming. And uh, they get uh, closer and closer together. And so you have to come deal with that you know it's not just the next one that's going to make cyborgs out of it and, and, and or whatever
1: right because i i, I got it's, the impression in some, some ways that they kind of think that they can uh get over this constraint by changing the very nature of humans yes yes and that well, is yeah well
2: that could be ultimately that could be ultimately um and i don't i won't argue with that because as i said earlier you know if you you have to change if you could change the fundamental design to me The fundamental thing that has to change in terms of humans is social interaction. Our social interaction and our culture has to change. And we're desperately trying to do that, but we've left hardly any time to do it. And I think that's the issue. So I do, and I think they're very naive in thinking all this can be done in the next few years. And especially given that uh, there are 7.5 billion people on this planet. Uh, By the end of the century, there might be 10 or 12 billion and they're talking, you know. I mean, this is part of the kind of bubble that one gets into uh, when one thinks one can do that and everybody else is going to follow. What's going to happen to the other 10 billion people? You know, are we all going to become the cyborgs in the next 25 years. It doesn't, it's. So
1: potentially, even if you have an innovation, it yes, might only rescue a small. Yeah, so some
2: tiny and they weren't not sustainable as a small portion. Because so, you need like all a these <laughs> so it's all it's I don't know, it's all a little bit mysterious to me and I'm not I don't really wanna you know, I shouldn't pass judgment other than the fact that I do pass judgment on making claims without having any serious theoretical structure to base it on. So, so I try you... to base it on traditional science.
1: Are you ultimately an optimist or a pessimist? Then?
2: Well, I'm, I'm a, I'm an, I, you know, there's a part of me as a, as a person I'm an optimist because, you know, we've been unbelievably resilient. On the other hand, we've been unbelievably stupid at times, and we're probably being very stupid now. Uh, and uh, it's, it's not that the problem isn't in principle soluble. I think the problem is soluble. It's simply two things. We haven't left enough time and we have no political leadership because ultimately the problem is one of political leadership and policymakers. And we don't see that. I mean, we have we're moving, especially in the United States, we moved in exactly the opposite direction. So I'm in that sense, I'm pessimistic. I'm pessimistic only because, well, not only, but mostly because we don't have the kind of visionary, charismatic leadership we seem to have, as I say, we're moving backwards. And I don't see it anywhere else in the world. There isn't a spokesperson uh, anywhere that's moving in this direction.
1: Is, is there maybe an option where we retrace to a more bounded type of growth?
2: Well, that's what would be the option, but we're not that I'm saying. We need, yeah. instead of, you know, grow bigger and bigger and uh, make America great again, and if we if we do Brexit, Britain, will again, you know, Britannia will rule the waves and so on. This is kind of, you know, it's all backward looking. Um, I think it's... And by the way, it's a global problem. One of the issues here is it's global. And uh, so we've got to think more globally, um, I think, inevitably.
1: And because um, absolutely, these laws are universal, um, as you say. A- ironically, um, London has stolen our time because... Um you know we're running out of studio time due to the uh, unfortunate yeah. scenario of traffic earlier today. So we're having to, we'll have to come to an end. So I just want to do a quick fire yeah. to sum it all up. So, what about time frame for the next big paradigm shift? When when do you think? I think it's 20, going 20, to come? 30 years, and maybe less. Where is the Some su-
2: disruption. In some fact, dis- just a side comment: Mr. Trump being elected came twenty years earlier. I mean he's a disruptive force I mean in my view not for good but he is unbelievably disruptive I mean he's a he is a shift
1: and in terms of the finite singularity uh, if nothing changes how much time do we have
2: well a very short time in that twenty thirty years
1: so basically that 20 years yeah I don't years, want to put a hard number on that this is extrapolation roughly.
2: and mm-hmm. it's uh, uh, something will have to change and will change probably
1: and a last um, question for for the uh, financial and economic uh, yes. minded people listeners does this mean economists have to forget about open-ended growth in terms of GDP and continue- well, I think
2: ultimately yes I mean maybe we have to redefine growth you know its growth is sort of very narrowly defined but maybe we have to redefine growth to mean something a little bit different and take it out of uniquely economic terms you know, and and find a soft landing where we can still be innovative and creative and entrepreneurial and still have some form of growth uh, and have all this marvelous stuff that capitalism and entrepreneurship has created. And, you know, that's what we want to try to save.
1: Well, we've only just touched upon it all. It was a fascinating discussion. Um, we have unfortunately we've run out of time and so we are going to collapse this podcast right now (laughs) do do get the book the book is um all of this is explained in much more detail and also do check out and it's written
2: by the way for a labor it's written for my mother
1: i understood it and also jeffrey has some amazing um videos on youtube do check him out on on across the internet he is very well (laughs) distributed so jeffrey thank you very much for joining me
2: thank you very much for the conversation i enjoyed it
0: And that's the end of this week's Encore episode. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode of Alpha Chat.
2: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface.